Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. I am so excited to be here with Dr. David Perlmutter. We're going to be talking about his new book um, that he has authored with his son, Austin, who is, I think, a relatively newly minted MD. I'm so excited for you guys, so excited for Austin. Um, the new book is titled Brainwash. Let me give you a little bit of the background on Dr. Perlmutter. I know he's been on New Frontiers before, and you're certainly familiar with his work, but Nonetheless, let's go through this formality. Uh, he's a board-certified neurologist and a four-time New, four New York Times bestselling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He received his MD from University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. Um, he serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Journal of Applied Nutrition. Uh, he lectures all over the globe, uh, including, interestingly, uh, institutions such as World Bank and IMF. Um, he's really getting the word out far and wide. He's at loads of universities, and of course, a lot of us know him from the Institute for Functional Medicine. Uh, his books have been published in 34 languages, um, including Grain Brain, which you're familiar with, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar. Um, there's a million copies in print on that book. Pretty extraordinary. And he's also, and we're good, I have to pick your brain on this a little bit, David. I'm so excited about it. I don't like my brain being picked, but go ahead <laughs> if you must. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. Okay. All right. Thanks for pointing out the uh, inappropriateness of that that's saying. Right. <laughs> He's the editor of the upcoming collection, The Microbiome in the Brain. That's coming out in CRC, and it's just a collection of top experts. Actually, it just came out. It just came out. Okay, perfect. Yeah, Good. we had a nice chapter by Dr. Bredesen, a nice chapter from Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Bland. 
from really leaders around the country uh, relating the microbiome to the brain. I well, guess we're, I guess we've already started is what it sounds like. Yeah, we have. And this is a <laughs> teaser. So the teaser question is, I want you to eventually, I'll, I mean, I'll wheel you back at some point okay. unless you already go there, talk about obviously some key findings in that book that influenced this book. But you know, before we jump into that, sure. I want to just say, I want to hear a little bit about the backstory on, on this particular book. You write about it a little bit, and it's very interesting. And I also want to say that I happened to see you guys for a little while yesterday on Instagram Live, whatever that, <laughs> I happened to click in and I saw you sitting there and Austin was um, talking about the book and, and it you know, he just had a lot of really nice, inspiring stuff to say. But you, I was focused on you because, man, you were the proud papa. <laughs> you bet I am. I mean, I've been saying as far as this book goes, uh, and even before, that uh, Austin, uh, who is now board certified internal medicine, uh, but well beyond that, he is, has always proven to be a mentor for me. I began saying that before he was even a teenager just because wow. of who he is. And uh, I will continue to, I think, to go through my life learning from him and this experience of writing a book with someone you love uh, is really very exciting. And I'll tell you, uh, the genesis of, of that uh, event occurred exactly in the room where I'm sitting right now talking to you. We were just sitting back and, and kicking it around a little bit and we stumbled on the, the, the idea that um, there's this breakdown that seems to occur between the transmission of information to our patients and the execution of that information by the patient. In other words, we do everything we can to learn as much information as possible. We read all the journals, we pay close attention to Kara Fitzgerald, we do all the right stuff, and then we do our best to leverage the various tools that we have to transmit that information to patients in print material, verbally, one-on-one. -on -one. But there's this huge disconnect then when patients get the information, know that it is important, and yet do not carry it out. Right. And we began realizing that's pretty darn important because you know it certainly transcends the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, people are buying wonderful books that are ultimately useless to them because they're not doing what the books are talking about. You know, you and I know that many of our colleagues are writing incredibly powerful books, well-researched, yeah. based on science, and yeah. yet what good is it if you leave the book on the shelf or you read the book, but you don't do what they are talking about? And we realize that there's a good reason for that, that there is this thing that we define in the book. We, we define something called disconnection syndrome. Yeah. And, it, it, uh, and we're going to explore the various nuances of, of that term in, in a moment. But from an anatomical and functional perspective, it means disconnection from the prefrontal cortex, disconnection from the area of the brain that lets us make thoughtful decisions, decisions that consider future consequences of today's or this hour's action, as contrasted by... Uh, decisions that are much more impulsive, that emanate from other areas of the brain, like the uh, amygdala, for example. Uh, so that what we're seeing happening is that people are becoming further and further disconnected from this gift that we have as humans, this incredible prefrontal cortex that allows us to be reflective and uh, look at various options in terms of decision-making 
and choose the best option as we look at how it may play out over time, as it relates to our health, as it relates to our relationships, as it relates to making financial decisions, uh, getting along with our neighbors, and even how we care for the planet. These are actions that require a pretty good functioning of the prefrontal cortex, and beyond that, require that the prefrontal cortex is connected to the more impulsive parts of the brain, allowing the prefrontal cortex to calm those areas down. When that connection, and that'll be the balance of what we talk about today, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. connection from the prefrontal cortex down to those other areas, we call this top-down control, when we threaten that connection, we lead to unbridled, uh, unregulated behaviors emanating from more primitive parts of the brain, including the amygdala, that foster impulsivity and narcissism and foster an us versus them mentality, uh, fear and hatred. Okay. So what was so astounding was that we began our exploration solely based upon the, the concern as to why people are making uh, less thoughtful decisions and realize that this prefrontal cortex that we are abandoning is the area of the brain that allows us not only to make good decisions that think about the future, but also allows us to engage things like empathy and compassion uh, and uh, relationships with other people and recognizing how important those relationships are. And, you know, that is transcendent across the, the panorama of the problems that we are facing today. Yeah. What we learned, which is so apropos to any discussion uh, in the realm of functional medicine, is that so many of our lifestyle choices will either nurture connection to the prefrontal cortex or will threaten to exacerbate this what we call disconnection syndrome. Not only disconnecting us from the prefrontal cortex, but disconnecting ourselves from our future selves, disconnecting ourselves from our friends, family, disconnecting us from the planet upon which we live. So, boy, we rolled out uh, quite a bit from just this original discussion of why are our patients making poor decisions? I am just so blown away. Holy, yeah, I'm blown away. Uh, it's, it's, you, it's exquisite what you've just said. So one of the things I've always thought about at a much less rich level, I mean, I have not done the beautiful drill down. Oh my gosh, this is such an important work. I can see why you guys were moved as you began to uncover it. So one of the things that we've known, it's in our mission statement um, on our webpage, is that really when people sort of embrace health, this holistic health that functional medicine can offer, you know, those individuals who are able to transition into that, it seems like, you know, it's like a pebble into the pond. The ripple effect tends to have ecological benefit as well. And so it's something that I've thought about in this abstract way and, and, and have observed it in my patients and have observed it in myself. Like I want to recycle a little bit more. I want to, you know, make, take care of the yard, you know, use less water. Like there's some basic things that I, I see emanate, but you've just connected it. You and Austin have just, you know, taken that and, and, and just, you know, it's like this system, you've just, you know, it's a systems exploration, but all, 
all systems, the spiritual aspect, the um, cognitive aspect, um, you know, the physical aspect. And I can see, you know, you, know, you have these amazing quotes where, say, 90% of heart attacks are pre pre preventable, diabetes, probably 90%, you know, these are all lifestyle issues. Um, and that's, you know, we're functional medicine docs, that's where we enter into the conversation. And so you, we've got all, we have these lush statistics that basically point out cancer is lifestyle or mostly lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, you have just very elegantly in your introduction pointed out why those, um, those statistics even exist, you know, and why some of these things are elusive. And so I guess I, I can you just talk about, um, you know, what happened? How did we get here? I can. I, I want to just tell you that um, as we're having our discussion right in this moment, I'm just, I, I too am really just taken by what this all means. And, you know, here, gosh, we've been working on this <laughs> book for 18 months. Uh, every word, should we use this word, that word, should it be capitalized? I don't know, you know. Yeah. And yet um, every moment like this is revisiting what this is all about and it never ceases to compel me uh, that this is um, is is uh, the big picture here. It's you know, yeah. the real holistic, if I can use that term, understanding yeah. of who we are and what yeah. we are and where we're going or where we could be going. And that's right. Uh, I, I'm not even sure I remember what your last question was, but uh, I, I'm going to say that how it it relates to uh, many of our touch points in. Uh, functional medicine is, you know, in, in functional medicine, we are looking at the, I think, the uh, inclusive mechanisms that tend to explain many of our maladies. Uh, most of what we look at tend to be uh, environmental issues, choices that we make, lifestyle choices, etc. And more recently, in the past uh, maybe five to seven years, we've been looking at not our, our genetic determinants, but more our genetic predispositions and the uh, dance that occurs between nature and nurture, between our lifestyle choices and then gene expression and the various nuances uh, of those uh, interactions based upon an individual's unique uh, gene uh, panorama. Uh, but that said, I think getting back to the big picture, you know, um, we've always centered for, uh, for quite some time on mechanistically on how inflammation seems to be a cornerstone mechanism uh, of so many of the issues that we are dealing with. Certainly, uh, the chronic degenerative conditions that represent the number one cause of death on our planet. And when we recognize that the big players in terms of morbidity and mortality are inflammatory, as you mentioned, coronary artery disease, cancer, diabetes, and certainly Alzheimer's disease as well, uh, what an eye-opener that at a level above all of this, making those decisions that then enhance or detract from the risk of these conditions, making those decisions is influenced by inflammation as well. So that what, where we're going right now in this moment is that our decision-making is threatened by making bad decisions, i.e., choose to eat poorly, choose to not get enough restorative sleep, choose to be more sedentary, choose to distance yourself from nature, mm -hmm. and you will increase inflammation, which then worsens the decision-making, leading to worse food choices, less sleep, more weight gain, 
and creates multiple feed forward pathways. And when you begin to get your arms around that, you begin to understand. Can I just, let me point, before you go there, if you can sure. just hold on to that thought, because I want to actually bring in another element that you put, put, put out there at, in your intro, and that is, so not only the poor decisions around what you're putting in your mouth and generating the inflammation and being sedentary, et cetera, but also you disconnecting, perhaps I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this, from your neighbor or being mean to your kids or, or, or being mean to yourself and whatever, you know, however that looks, but just... I don't know, perhaps spending endless amounts of time on, on in, with electronic media in front of your face and tuning out that way. Are, are these all connected? Well, they absolutely are. And, you know, in the book, we, uh, we deconstruct each of those entry points, uh, most importantly at the beginning of the book, uh, to call them out, uh, to raise awareness of many of the, you know, everything you've mentioned. Uh, of technology. As Christian Lang said, Nobel Prize winner, uh, technology is a useful servant, but a dangerous master. Yeah. That was in 1921. So, <laughs> you know, what, we're, we're not being Luddites here. We're not saying that, uh, you know, let's bail on the tech. We need our tech. We wrote this book yeah. based upon uh, our uh, uh, research that, uh, you know, really virtually opened us up to an unlimited amount of knowledge base to come up with what, you know, what's very timely. And, but uh, it's about mindful use of technology. And right. if, if we're there just for a moment, when we recognize that 42% of the time that Americans are awake, their eyes are fixed on one screen or another, whether their phone, their pad, their computer or television, that's, you know, over a lifetime, that's 22 years of screen time. And we can talk specifically about the direct detriment that may have uh, to brain wiring. But beyond that, I think more, perhaps more importantly is, uh, you know, what we call out is that when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. You're not exercising. You're not um, preparing your food. Uh, you're not interrelating inter with other people in a, in a more personal way. Doing those things that we know help reestablish connection to this prefrontal cortex. So. That's one entry point. We, re we recognize how difficult it is when we're online and you know, we call out the fact that our brains are actively being, uh, our attention is actively being sold to the highest bidder. That mm. things pop up, that there's clickbait and ads that are targeted for based mm. on our previous online experience, that the next YouTube mm. video just happened to be something you might be interested in. How does that happen? We know mm. how that happens. And that, um, our screen time is valuable, not to us as much as to others. Uh, there is great benefit to what we can accomplish using digital media, that's for sure. But we recognize that uh, it doesn't take much for us to be dragged away. It's much like meditation. You know, when you're, when you're involved in meditation, thoughts come into your mind and oftentimes you'll, you, know, you have to think about this, what, uh, you know, what you're gonna do tomorrow, what you did yesterday but then you gently and lovingly are able to guide yourself back to the meditation. The same thing happens when you're online, but it's much more aggressive because it's specifically designed virtually to hijack your attention. And we know that it happens. You know, it's been said that if you have five minutes to spend on uh, Instagram, that's a good way to spend an hour. So um, right. it, it happens and we're aware of it. So as it relates to our digital experiences, we developed an acronym called the test of time, T-I-M-E, T, 
how much time do you dedicate to whatever it is you plan to do online or watching television? And that's the time. I, is it intentional? What's your goal? What are you going to do? What do you want to get out of that experience? M, while you are uh, experiencing uh, this online time or whatever it may be, are you M, mindful? Are you staying with it? Are you understanding and, and, and recognizing the attempts to hijack your consciousness, as it were? And finally, E, is this experience ultimately enriching? Are you net positive uh, once it's said and done? You know, we, we know that uh, 6% of people who have access to the internet are now characterized as having internet addiction. Yeah. Uh, it is a risk factor for suicide. Uh, it is a, um, a risk factor for uh, other medical problems, uh, comorbidity type issues. Uh, and that's a big number. That is uh, a quarter billion people. It's five times the population of Great Britain. Wow. So it is aggressive what goes on online. And I think that uh, it's really important that this experience is designed to rewire our brains, to keep us further away from our goals, to enhance yeah. our connection to impulsivity so that we will make impulsive decisions as it relates to our online experience by those things that are, uh, that are being put in front of us, et cetera. And uh, I think job one for us in a brainwash was simply to call it out. I yeah. think being aware of it on the front end is hugely important so people can see that it's happening. So you know, in China now they they have boot camps for internet addicted uh, people and, uh, South Korea is now offering digital detox so that people can actually reestablish connection to real humans. So, uh, you know, the average global a person who has access to the internet has eight and a half social media accounts. That's pretty, uh, pretty incredible, if you ask me. So you would say that this um, engagement in digital media if not done in very intentionally, you know, with, with a sort of a conscious effort at, at awareness, just is destroying the prefrontal amygdala regulation? Exactly. Uh, it's, it's more, with all due respect, it's more than the fact that I've said that. I mean, that's what, as you, have you read, you know, you've read the book, that's what the science is telling us. And that's uh, kind of spooky because yeah. that, coupled with diet, for example. Uh, yeah, coming back to the inflammation piece. Yeah, is, uh, is threatening this connection to the prefrontal cortex, basically taking the adult out of the room. That's and leaving the amygdala uh, in charge. And it's, uh, you know, it's the parents leaving the kids at home, uh, spending the weekend on a cruise where the kids are home with 30 of their closest friends. And how's that going to end up? <laughs> you know, right. it... it it, it takes away this top-down control that allows us to make more thoughtful decisions. And you mentioned anger a moment ago. You know, anger is this manifestation of, of unchecked amygdala uh, activity. And I um, very candidly in the book uh, describe an experience that I had several years ago in a big box uh, store when somebody verbally assaulted my wife and my amygdala took over. Mm. And, uh, Gratefully, before anything um, irreversible happened, I reined it in. Uh, I'm 
you know, and I believe that things like meditation, for example, enhance your ability to do so. But nonetheless, uh, we've all been there. You know, uh, cars are going to cut you off in traffic. People are yes. going to forget to pay bills. Things, things happen, right, in our world. Right. It's really how we respond to those day-to-day -day stresses, I think, that really uh, defines where we are on this spectrum in terms of this connection between prefrontal cortex and then this top-down control that we so desperately need. There's a lot of anger around. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of us versus them these days. Yes. There's a lot of entrenchment into ideology that yes. isn't going to serve us well. And that is fostered by social media sites that cater to one way of thinking. Right. When we re-engage the prefrontal cortex, it allows us to engage in what's called cognitive empathy. Yeah. To look at and experience another person's point of view. And that's how we make progress. That's how we move the ball down the field by sharing ideas and coming up with new solutions. It's diversity of mentality and diversity uh, breeds resilience. You know, we, we know that from uh, looking at our gut bacteria. The more diverse the gut bacteria, the more our gut bacteria embrace each other's ideas, if you will. I know it's a stretch. But the more resilience we have in terms of our health. Same thing with uh, our relationships with other people, hey, it's the same thing in the Amazon. Uh, the more diversity of flora and fauna, the more resilient the Amazon is to responding to environmental challenges. We need diversity. Right, right. Um, so listen, I just wanted to ask you, it's just, that's just making me think of so many things. There was an interesting soil study that I was just reading a little blurb on from scientists talking about you know, diversity and in the soil, sort of like the next generation hygiene hypothesis. There was a paper that was just published that I can. It actually just came out yesterday. You're right. Yeah. Yes. You're familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Anyway. And there's just, you know, just talking about the whole nature thing there is, there's just kind of a, a, a whole body of research in that arena coming out. That's so interesting. But so you guys came up with this time acronym and I'm just kind of curious as you brought this into your prefrontal cortex, Cortex, if you, as you brought these ideas into consciousness, undoubtedly you were looking at your own habits. And I mean, what did you find? Did you find that you were, you know, fall, you, I mean, I know that I'm falling victim to the digital trap and that some real intentional action has to, has to happen for me. But what I'm curious about what you guys noticed as well. Well, let me say that uh, you bet is the answer. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, both Austin and I identified so many areas that need work in ourselves, in um, how we relate to others, in uh, how much time uh, we are spending doing uh, things uh, that may detract. And uh, that's for sure. You know, this is always a job in progress and, and uh, we can each do better. And uh, there's a, a great book I just finished reading by a fellow by the name of Dan Harris called 10% Happier. And I mentioned that because, hey, he's only going for 10%. It's, it's a book based upon, he's a, an uh, ABC news reporter, and it's based upon his thought that he was able to achieve just 10% more happiness by engaging in daily meditation. So, you know, it's certainly something uh, we work on. Uh, I could have uh, spent a lot more time in the evenings on the computer working as I've done for years, you know, writing books and preparing lectures, you name it. But recognizing, for example, how that might compromise my sleep, 
the importance of sleep as we talk about uh, in uh, Brainwash for reconnection to the prefrontal cortex, how mm -hmm. lack of sleep uh, not only threatens that connection, but also uh, increases uh, inflammation associated with increased levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha and uh, interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein. Uh, we know that inflammation, again, threatens not only our connection to the prefrontal cortex, but also the availability of serotonin through what I'm sure you've talked about, the kynurenic acid pathway. Mm -hmm. So these things all connect. And uh, from my personal perspective, uh, early on, I got an aura ring and I learned that uh, some good things about my sleep, that I sleep a lot, uh, I mean enough, I get to sleep within seconds, but that my level of deep sleep was not where I wanted it. And deep sleep is when we activate our lymphatic system uh, to purge the brain of its accumulated toxins, et cetera. And therefore I began looking at some of my choices, um, how late in the day I was consuming caffeine, how late in the day I was working on the computer. And if I were required to get something out uh, by the next day that uh, I would turn on night mode, for example, and block blue light on the computer and help me uh, help my melatonin levels. And I was able quite dramatically to improve the time I spend I spend in deep sleep. Have okay. I noticed anything from that? And I haven't really, but I am a believer that, um, you know, if the glymphatic system is what it's crank, uh, cranked up to be, I, I, I want that thing uh, working full blast for me, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so blue light on the computer. Um, less caffeine or, or, or just, you know, modulating how late you go into the day. And what, I mean, anything else? Were well, those the myself, two big things? Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Reg, uh, much more, uh, much more dedication to uh, regular meditation. Okay. Uh, we, we talk quite a bit about meditation and its uh, salubrious aspects in the book. Uh, I think people pretty well, at least listening to this podcast today, know what that's all about. But in the context of disconnection syndrome, there probably isn't anything uh, as, as studied or as powerful uh, as the, the value of meditation for helping us reconnect. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this content, you might want to know about our functional medicine clinic immersion programs available to all qualified practitioners who want to advance their applied clinical skills and build confidence in helping even their toughest cases. Delivered fully online, our program provides live mentorship option, access to our clinic's discussions of real patient cases, teach-ins with expert colleagues, and the opportunity to become part of an engaged and nurturing community of peers. Most importantly, you'll get the support you need to bridge the gap between functional medicine theory and practice. Please visit drcarefitzgerald.com, choose the Professionals tab, and select Professional Education Programs to find out more about the options available and to apply. And now back to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. Okay. okay. And, I'm sorry? Well, I was specifically referring to sleep. If, 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 if there were any other little pearls you yourself found were helpful, and but I do, without question, want to talk about the overall approach that you're doing in disconnection. You know, sure. So at least for me, um, sleep hasn't been um, you know a huge challenge for me. As mentioned, I, I did want to augment uh, time spent in deep sleep, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't mean that there you know just because I haven't had issues with it, there are plenty of other things in my life I've had yeah. issues. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't, we don't talk about a lot of stuff. We mentioned blue light. We mentioned getting a lot of 
natural light during the day, mm -hmm. uh, limiting caffeine, we said after 2 p.m., uh, really uh, reducing the idea of eating later, uh, looking at yes. the value of time-restricted eating, making your uh, sleeping area a sleep sanctuary. Uh, and uh, I'm all in for recommending, as we talk about in the book, getting a formal sleep study. As an adult, I think that's uh, extremely valuable right. to have a polysomnogram. I mean, we can learn a lot with wearable technology, there's no question. Mm -hmm. But to get a sense as to uh, O2 saturation, uh, the possibility of any breathing or uh, issue or uh, periodic leg movements, anything that's going to uh, disrupt the depth of, and quality of your sleep, I think it's really important to know because by and large, there are a lot of interventions that you can engage that can help you get through that. You know, a lot of people are asleep and don't recognize their sleep apnea or don't recognize uh, how deeply they're snoring and therefore threatening their oxygen saturation. Yes. This type of non-restorative sleep, though it may be seven hours in length, um, is associated with a significant increased risk, for example, for type 2 diabetes, cancer, and even Alzheimer's. Right. Likely... Uh, through the augmentation of inflammatory pathways. So the problem, though, as it relates to disconnection syndrome is that, and we're all familiar with this, even one night of non-restorative sleep is associated with dramatic increase in impulsivity. That uh, in one study that looked at uh, how people respond to uh, looking at a picture that might be threatening uh, mm. while they're in a functional MRI machine, uh, people who had a good night's sleep versus people who had a non-restorative uh, night, who didn't get to sleep, basically. They're in an MRI machine next morning. They either, uh, they show them a, uh, a picture of a challenging face, a threatening face. Those individuals who uh, didn't get a good night's sleep have a 60% increased activity in the amygdala in comparison to those people who had a good night's rest. The other interesting thing That's is interesting, yeah. there are, there's a, a type of intervention, a study called delayed discounting. It basically is a measurement of impulsivity. And impulsivity is dramatically increased in lockstep with not getting a good night's sleep. And what does that translate into? It translates into making not thought through decisions, decisions that are impulsive, that relate to things like choosing food that's not necessarily good for us. We know that when we've been up all night, uh, that our, our likelihood of uh, eating foods that are not necessarily good for us, and we know that is much, much higher, and that for people who chronically are sleep deprived, their average daily increased caloric consumption is about 380 kilocalories. And you know, that's without a, a, uh, uh, an increase in energy burn. So it's a net 380 calories more, you know, when it only takes uh, 3,500 calories to equal a pound of body fat, you could see how this very quickly translates uh, into weight gain, which does what? Further compromises your ability to get a good night's sleep, more bad decisions, more poor food choices, and yet another vicious cycle. Right. More of the inflammation that sort of, that underscores all of it. It's really extraordinary. All, you know, the multi-level involvement of disconnection syndrome. You know, David, you're just making me think of you know, being interested in epigenetics and having finished our study and writing it up. Um, 
it doesn't take much sleep deprivation at all to show genome-wide changes in methylation and actually acceleration of um, the epigenetic clock, so accelerated aging with not a heck of a lot of sleep deprivation. To me, I think about that, you know, those epigenetic changes as perhaps being more resilient. You know, it's not one Snickers bar where you see your sugar grow up for X amount of hours and drops down, although that can have, you know, that can change epigenetic expression also. But, but you know, you, you, we start to kick in something lasting that, you know, is arguably contributing to some of those behaviors you just, um, you know, you just outlined that happen as a result of poor sleep. Well, it's true. And, uh, you know, it is all about, I think, um, recognizing how powerful um, are our lifestyle choices in terms of our gene expression uh, and yeah. beyond that uh, how there are uniquenesses uh, that are based upon our, our single nucleotide polymorphisms that may make situations even worse for some people so I really believe that you know we're going to be learning much more about that um, you know how for example sleep uh, there, there's plenty of information that looks at, uh, you know, the food, uh, uh, how food influences uh, gene expression and, and how that, how uniquenesses there are, are, uh, you know, expressed into ultimately uh, phenotypic expression based upon uh, these interactions. And, you know, we've certainly come a long way from uh, genetic determinism to this yes. idea that we, we powerfully influence. It was you know, when I used to talk about this, we used to say 70% of the genes that are involved in longevity and health are under our control. That, that number is now close to 90%. Right, that's and right. that is, it's uh, kind of uh, compelling on the one hand, but I would say to spin it, I'd say it's certainly empowering yes. because that allows you then, once you understand your genome and you've been able to go through it with somebody who can provide those interpretations, looking at your uh, methylation pathways, for example, mm -hmm. looking at uh, infl inflammatory pathways, what your risks are and how yes. you can offset that. But this relationship between inflammation and poor decision-making and impulsivity and uh, fostering an us versus them mentality, I think is something to think about as it relates to inflammation caused by diet and specifically the Western diet, which is becoming the global diet. And so what we've just connected then uh, are changes happening to nutrition on the planet that are locking us into impulsivity, self-centeredness, and us versus them mentality based upon the changes that are happening to what people are eating around the globe. Yeah. So basically the food changes that are happening, nutrition changes globally, are changing the mindset, mm. changing how people see each other around the planet. Yeah. It's the, well, multi-track action of the poor, poor diet, lack of sleep, screen time, screen time that's dictated by corporations, as you point out, and, you know, clickbait and so on and so forth, and all of these things, um, you know, really profoundly alienating us. Can you talk about... Um, the solution like how do we how do we unpack this with our patients how do we approach it you know again just thinking about my own practice my you know we're, I'm, a, I, I'm a functional medicine doctor so lifestyle interventions are, 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 are 
are a part of what I do with all of my patients. But as I was reflecting on our conversation, I was, think, I was visualizing the treatment plan and they actually fall at the bottom of my treatment plan, mm-hmm. which means sometimes they're not going to be front and center. And I'm listening to you and how, I mean, you know, I can see that they actually need to be that 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 the, that the lifestyle interventions that fall at the bottom of our matrix sheet too, they really need to be left at the top. You know, the things that we're we're putting so much energy and time into. And so, how do we approach our patients? You know, really kind of armed with this extraordinary knowledge that you guys have written up and and unpacked for us. The frustration uh, that we feel uh, is, I think, we have to ask ourselves. Um, do we blame patients? And uh, I, I would say yes. Uh, I, I'd be the first to admit my guilt in that. Uh, wondering, you know, I've given you so much information and yet, you know, your blood sugar is higher than it was last time. You've gained eight pounds. Uh, you're obviously not right. doing what I uh, instructed you, you know, and there's so much yeah. involved in that right off the bat. I mean, it's paternalistic, yeah. it's aggressive. And it's blaming. And I think it's, we have to first embrace the idea that the deck is stacked against our patients. The deck is stacked against ourselves. The, the modern world is stacking the deck against each and every one of us. And the doctor-patient relationship, it's really quite evident because your patients know what the good actions are. They get what you are telling them. They know darn well that they need to walk for 30 minutes a day, whatever it is you've told them to do, eat more vegetables, stop uh, smoking, whatever it may be, but they cannot make that decision. And um, I think so important that we stop blaming them. Mm-hmm. And so important for each and every one of us to stop blaming ourselves for not doing X, Y, or Z. We all have goals. We all know that there are things we should be doing and get down on ourselves for just not being able to carry it out. You know, uh, whether it's, you know, for me saying, oh, I want to be time restricted tomorrow and not eat until four, whatever it may be. Yeah. Or a patient somebody saying, you know, I'm going to get up and walk around the block one time tomorrow and then not do it and blame himself or blame herself. And then healthcare providers blame them as well. We've got to come to the understanding that the deck is stacked against us. Mm. That there is this, you know, it's not meant to sound like a conspiracy theory. But we understand that sugar, now added to 68% of the 1.2 million foods sold in America's grocery stores, hacks into our valuable survival adaptation, in other words, our sweet tooth. We all have a sweet tooth because in our more hunter-gatherer days, it told us several things, that the food was safe, that the food was ripe, and it also gave us a little sugar to uh, increase insulin, to lay down some fat so we could survive through the winter. Very adaptive type, type of, uh, of uh, desire that we have for sweet. Yeah. Uh, but these days, it's hacked into. It's hacked into specifically manipulating our food sources so that we will continue to eat these foods. Our desire for interacting socially is also a powerful survival adaptation, allows us to live in groups, uh, to, to protect each other, uh, to have specialization of tasks based on ability, etc. But that adaptation is being hacked into 
by this thing called social media, which by and large right. is not. So that's how it works. And, you know, earlier in our conversation, we talked about how prey we are to this online manipulation, for example. But it happens, uh, you know, on television, it happens in all corners of our lives that we are first made not to feel adequate enough, not good looking enough, thin enough, rich enough, tall enough, whatever it may be, inadequate, and here is the quick fix. Do this, buy this, and everything will be good. Well, that's a short-term instant gratification that does nothing mm-hmm. more that through, than through neuroplasticity strengthens our wiring to the amygdala while at the same time causes further withering of our connection to the more appropriate decision maker, the prefrontal cortex. So the more we do it, uh, the more challenging and difficult it becomes to get out of it. Let me get back to then, what do you take to your office? I think first of all is this understanding. Tomorrow morning, uh, when you uh, are seeing this patient who is just not doing what you think she should be, and beyond that, is not doing what she thinks she should be and knows damn well she should be doing and wants to do, but can't bring herself or himself to do. It's this understanding, again, that so much of our modern world is keeping us, is conspiring to keep us uh, from being able to make these uh, better decisions. So what do we do? We want to get back on the carousel, and we don't, uh, we don't have to jump on the carousel at every entrance point, every on-ramp. If we can do one thing, it'll help our decision-making moving forward. Now, what might that one thing be? Really depends on the patient. Yeah. If this happens to be someone who's significantly overweight, it might be simply paying attention to that individual's sleep hygiene, because sleep, quality of sleep, affects Uh, dietary choices affects impulsivity that relate to food choices the next day. So that might be the entrance ramp for that uh, individual. It might be simply uh, engaging in a meditation program. Uh, It might be looking at that person who spends all of his or her time indoors to say, hey, look, 87% of the time uh, that Americans, uh, uh, 80% of our time is spent indoors and another 6% is spent in a car. And guess what? It turns out that nature exposure Mm. reduces inflammation, reduces cortisol, both of which, inflammation and cortisol, threaten our connection to the prefrontal cortex, threaten our ability to make better choices. Why don't we see if we can get you outside for 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes every other day? If that's a no-go for whatever reason, patient lives in a place where that just can't be, step two, okay, can't do that. Why don't we try bringing in a couple of houseplants into your kitchen, into your dining room, uh, into, or even bring a plant to work. It's bring a plant to work day for you and leave it on your <laughs> desk. Now, if that won't work because they don't allow plants at work or you don't want to be caring for a plant, even a photograph of a natural environment lowers inflammation and lowers uh, stress, lowers cortisol, and allows a, a slight uptick in the dedication and the ability to make better decisions. Once you get your foot in the door, we're all in. Once that door, just give us a little crack in the door and we're gonna ultimately pave the way for not a a, a feedback cycle that worsens with time, but a feed forward cycle that ultimately manifests in making better decisions. Better food choices foster better food choices. 
Better food choices foster better sleep. Better food choices foster more dedication to exercise, for example. Isaac Newton told us that an object in motion tends to remain in motion. And that means that when we choose to exercise and get into motion, that fosters better decision-making. So tomorrow we'll remain in motion. We'll do more exercise. Yeah. It's just, it's, yeah, thank you so much for that. So uh, just a lot of, you know, behavioral shifts starting very gently, like really meeting the person who's, um, who, who, who's allowing us to walk with them on their health journey, really kind of meeting them where they're at and dialoguing about what they're interested in doing. And yeah. And, and you, bringing- know, you know who really benefits from that? You do. Dalai Lama said that, uh, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Mm. So, hey, maybe that's selfish and uh, I'm all in. What the heck? Uh, <laughs> I, that's what motivates us. And you're going to benefit by engaging this empathy of yeah. now seeing things through that individual's eyes that he or she can't make those decisions, that he or she believes things in a certain way. Right. You're going to be with that. And gosh, you know, uh, maybe not you, but I have thought to myself over the years that when you see individuals who are significantly overweight, gee, why don't they just make better decisions? Well, now I know why. Right. Uh, because A, their overweightedness is, is causing them to make uh, worse decisions. Uh, and, and overeat, for example. Gary Taubes, Uh, says that we're not overweight because uh, we eat too much. Uh, We eat too much because we're overweight. Mm -hmm. We need to embrace the idea that our fat cells have an agenda. We talk about cancer cells, for example, doing what they can, manipulating our immune systems, making them less efficient, less uh, appropriate, uh, and enhancing angiogenesis to improve their blood supply, and doing all these things to fight for their survival. And then uh, unfortunately, our fat cells do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, the more uh, fat cell, uh, activity we have of our fat cells, the more we lay down fat, the higher is our body inflammation, the higher are our ghrelin levels that increase our appetite. So in a very yeah. real sense, our fat cells are, are paving the way for us to gain weight while at the same time compromising our sleep, which further compromises our decision-making. Yes. Yeah, and I want to just, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the beginning, talking about the microbiome, I think, you know, really everything that you've just said can be influenced by what's going on in our microbiome. And of course, we're going to be biasing our microbiome based on what we're eating. So again, it's this, you know, vicious, kind of the, the vicious cycle. It is important to call it out uh, yeah. as a vicious cycle. Uh, that's part one. It's happening uh, I get it. Now that I get it, what in the heck can I do? Yeah, that's and right. That's, you know, that's the, the, the positive part of the messaging here. It's why you wrote the book. Because it's very clear that um, these things can be reversed. Uh, does it take some work? You bet it does. But this is the way, even, you know, in the doctor-patient relationship, which is, um, this book isn't geared uh, specifically for that, but you can clearly see how much play it's going to have in that area. Sure. Uh, but even, even in, in terms of that, by engaging this understanding, this becomes top level. And I mentioned earlier, there's some 
wonderful books out there written by people that you and I know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, great books. We see them coming out left, right, and center. We see the public television programs, great mm -hmm. information. Guess what? Mm -hmm. These books, these programs are totally useless. Yes. They're just a complete waste of time if people are not able to implement. So we created br uh, Brainwash to be the bridge then between information and action. It's just, I, yeah, it's extraordinary. When you embrace what's going on around us, <laughs> um, I, you know, the, the fact that our attention is sold to the highest bidder, that our brain yeah. and our decision-making is being hacked and our brains are being rewired, locking us into impulsive behavior and distancing us from being able to relate to our prefrontal cortex, it's time A, to call it out and B, to reverse that situation. And incredibly, so much of what we are, have identified are the same recommendations, uh, similar recommendations that we've been making for some time as it relates to stress and cortisol and the other uh, touch points of the functional medicine matrix. Mm -hmm. But the conversation is really around freeing people of the burden of blame, you know, in this educational piece, which is just extraordinary. It reminds me of, you know, as the tobacco industry was really kind of outed for their nefarious brainwashing ways, like it, you know, it sort of falls in there or um, sugar, you know, big sugar <laughs> and yeah, some of the other. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, when you uh, recognize that, you know, in the old days, uh, to determine how to advertise your product, you would do what's called a focus group. You'd get a bunch of people in a room and you'd run various of uh, the ad touch points to a group of people and they would respond in one way or another. Now, advertising involves the use of functional MRI scan to mm -hmm. determine what specific messaging is lighting up the reward center, is, is, is uh, really you know, hacking into an individual's brain, and that's what we're going to go with. That's what we're up against. Yes. Uh, that is the, the, the very leading edge of technology, you know, of neuroscience, mm -hmm. being used to manipulate us to make choices that are mm -hmm. not necessarily good for us. As I mentioned earlier, this addition of sweetener to our foods, yeah. what a powerful hack that is. And it's so, uh, I think, valuable and empowering to have that called out. Right. We begin to recognize what in the heck is going on around us and decide uh, with baby steps becoming adult steps uh, yes. that you don't want to participate in this anymore. Be, yeah, we don't want to be puppets of unwitting puppets of, of some corporate interest. Yeah, and we might start that you know, by bringing a plant in the office, you know, that might be the first little toe in the door of, revol of a revolution, of an inner revolution. Well, it, you know, and uh, it's so important. It, it's not just uh, important for the readers of this book for themselves. Yeah. But again, I want to get back to the existential value of our reconnection, not yes. only to each other, but what is demonstrated is that you know, there's this relationship between uh, activation of the prefrontal cortex and pro-environmental behavior. Yes. So that this is all uh, getting back to the relationship with ourselves, our future selves, our neighbors and families, our communities, and the, the viability of the planet on which we live. My goodness. Yeah.
Yeah. So it's a it's a very big story, and our hope is that it's a beautiful story. <laughs> it really it is. Because it ends uh, in a very in a very powerful way with um, tools for empowerment, tools for change um, that allow people to, as mentioned, a recognize that this is happening and b offset those things in mm-hmm. very meaningful ways that are not in and of themselves individually very challenging. And yeah. that feed forward, uh, pave the way and enhance the likelihood that, that more of them can be added. Now, it is it, uh, you know, dietary specific with the exception of being, uh, having the goal in terms of dietary recommendations to be uh, anti-inflammatory. Uh, so many of the very good diets that we are seeing these days uh, ultimately manifest in reduced inflammation, whether it's a Mediterranean diet or modifications of the Mediterranean diet, more of a ketogenic diet, uh, vegan diet, or at least more vegetarian. These things all tend towards lower inflammation with the, you know, with the real goal being to dramatically reduce the consumption of sugar and uh, other forms of highly refined carbohydrates, as well as ultra processed foods. Mm-hmm. which we know, you know, to call them foods, I think is a misnomer, which we know uh, have direct effects in terms of augmenting uh, inflammation uh, and, and in other ways, enhancing our loss of uh, important uh, cofactors, minerals, if you will. Yes. So, uh, you know, that's, these are things I think that unite the, the wide array of really terrific ideas in uh, nutritional recommendations that we are seeing from our colleagues, which by and large, good advice yes Uh, but great you want to do that type of diet hey have at it this is what you really resonate with from what you've read fantastic but what our goal is 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 to give you the tools to make that happen yes you want to go all in on paleo great here are some here are some ideas to think about uh about paleo you know you really don't want to go hog wild no pun intended on the meat but uh, (laughs) and if you do grass-fed wild fish Fine. Right. You want to be vegan? Wonderful, terrific diet. Good for you, good for the planet, but be cognizant of your need for vitamin D, vitamin B12, uh, a couple of other ideas that you may want to consider. What is your source of iron, etc. cetera. Uh, but here you go. That's good. That's what you want to do for whatever reason, have at it. But here are the tools to be give you more of the ability to commit and to follow through on your choice. Yes. Uh, be vegan or paleo, ketogenic, whatever it may be. I got it. You know, I'm excited to see, so you've, you're launching this into, you know, the global, you know, the consumer space, I guess, just for everyone. It's launched for everybody, but I can see your ideas really kind of infiltrating how we're thinking as clinicians, you know, and kind of inform our teaching in, um, you know, in IFM and beyond, ideally. Um, because you're connecting some some extraordinarily yeah, important I, points. I, I, you know, the, the, the goal here uh, today is really connecting uh, to the clinician first, yeah. uh, heal thyself first, and then recognize the power of that empathy part by then transmitting to the patient that information. But, you know, yeah. uh, interestingly, we've learned that this, emphasis on decision-making uh, transcends the health arena. Uh, we were just uh, contacted yesterday by um, Great Britain because um, 
they are, uh, have looked at our book in an area that we didn't really consider, and that is how people make decisions with reference to their finances. Wow, there you go. You know, and, yeah. You know, we're all about health, and they said, yes, it's, sure. your book is so valuable because so many people are making impulsive decisions with respect to their investments and this, that, and the other, and they're not mm -hmm. looking at making more well-thought-out uh, decisions as it relates to how they handle money. Wow, there you go. We don't want to be impulsive in, in our, our money handling, that's for sure. We want to be able to think about the future, how it may play out. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, um, I've never had this experience with uh, Brainmaker or Grain Brain, but uh, prior to publication here in America, that the book was acquired as it relates to the brain, uh, brainwash by 16 other countries. Wow. Uh, that it's, uh, I am really, really excited <laughs> about that. Yes. That Russia, that South Korea and Turkey, uh, hmm. Lithuania, Italy, France, Germany, Portugal have, wow. are going to read uh, this information in their language. Uh, and uh, it, it's, I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful yeah. that uh, whatever segment of the population can, first of all, realize what's going on with respect to our, call it what it is, mental manipulation, A and B, mm -hmm. gain some uh, tools to, to, to do their very best to offset this and mm -hmm. ultimately to, to re-engage in empathy and to tamp down the us versus them mentality and to recognize that, you know, Kara, we are in this together. Yes. That's what holistic is all about. Right, right, right. What a, what a beautiful way to, um, to wrap this podcast up. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I'm just so excited to get to be a part of the launch. I'm just so thrilled to be able to be here talking to you about it. I feel a lot of gratitude, which I think is one of the ways we can loosen that, that knot. Um, and I, uh, yeah, David, so thank you so much for this work. And what a, you know, just what a blessing that you got to do it with Austin. And I just wish you the best and we'll support you and root for you and, and put the word out. <laughs> oh, you're making me feel so, so good right now. And I, I have so much gratitude in my heart for you, for the work that you do, uh, for, for allowing me to share this time with you today. Um, so thank you. Absolutely. An honor. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.